that's like the sixth time I watched the video and I'm like, I still tear up. Because that's, that's why. This sense of we're not reading the Bible together just so we can tick a box. Just so we can say at the end of 2021, hey guys, we read the Bible, well done. It's because we actually believe there is something here for us today. There's something starting in the background there, isn't there? Yeah, fantastic. I was like, oh, is that the music to get off the stage? That's early. Um, we don't have music for me to get off the stage here. Although some people are like, that would be a great idea for Michael. Yes, it would. Back onto what we're talking about. And there's this sense where um, I'm so encouraged by Charlotte. Charlotte's actually my hairdresser. She, her small business is a hairdressing business. And both Christian and non-Christian alike, these people come in and she just has it in place of her magazines at her hair salon. And people are like, what's this? She's like, you should take that home. And she's got people not even part of New Life reading the Bible with us because she's like, it's changing my life. It might change yours. And so for those of you who are like, does Leviticus help anybody? You just heard a story of someone who said, hey, I'm finding the richness in this text. It is beautiful. Um, and if you were still asking that question, come chat to Paul Jones afterwards. He will help you understand how beautiful Leviticus is. Hey, Paul. No, you won't. Okay, that's awkward. Oh, we can forget them. All right, don't worry about it. Fantastic. Friends, I want to tell you a story today I heard a couple of years ago and then contextualize it. There was, an, it was a naval vessel moving through the ocean and uh, a U.S. Navy ship and, and, and the U.S. commander of, of the, the U.S. captain of this ship realized that there was a light out in front of them and they recognized that the light of their ship and the light that was oncoming was heading for a collision course. And so in this moment, they got on the radio and they said, this is the captain of the ship. We need you to avert your course 15 degrees or we will collide. The voice came back. Uh, no, you need to avert your course 15 degrees or we will collide. And the US captain jumped on the radio again and said, I cannot say this strenuously enough. Change your course. The voice came back. I can't say this strenuously enough. Change your course. The guy came back on the, the, the guy, the captain came back and said, this is the US commander of the USS Lincoln. We have 16 gunships ready to go. We are action ready. Move your ship. The voice came back and said, well, we're a lighthouse, so it's your call. <laughs> and I'd say that story because for so many of us, and, and maybe for me, sometimes this is, Sometimes how I interact with God. God, this is where I'm heading. Shift in line with what I think should happen next. And in fact, this is the way I often find culture encourages me to approach faith. And dare I say, even the Word of God, that there are moments when we, when we approach faith and, and things are uncomfortable, things aren't happening the way we want them to, and we're like, okay, God, you need to change into what I would like you to be so that this is comfortable. Maybe you're here today, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Now, hear me, friends. I am no way trying to communicate to you that the Bible is a rock in the middle of the ocean that you will break yourself against if you keep on moving. But I do believe that the Word of God is like a lighthouse that is not seeking to destroy us, but guide our way home. And when we misconstrue it, when we misunderstand it, we miss the point altogether and we come up against a force that is eternal, that is great, that is mighty, that has something to offer us more than just bowing to our whim. You know, as we're here today, what we're going to be looking at is one of the most important values as part of New Life. New Life has six values and the, one of those values is scriptural discernment. 
And it's this understanding, as a people, we will be a people who know the Bible, who read the Bible, who are well-versed in Scripture. It is central to who we are. Maybe you're here for the first time in church, and you're going, man, I, I don't know about church, I know about faith, and now we're talking about the Bible. The Bible throughout history has sometimes been used as a tool of a religious oppression, sometimes societal control. But here at New Life, we don't think it's a tool of oppression or control, but the Word of God, in fact, as St. Augustine would say it, that the Bible contains letters from home to the people of God who are called to be formed by the Word of God. So what I want to do today is just pause for a moment in the midst of our year, before next week when we start walking through the book of Ephesians. It's going to be a great week. And, and I want us to explore four big questions. Now, you might know the answers. And that's great. You might not know the answers. But I want to ask four questions and kind of have a stab at providing some resourceful thinking around these. The first would be, what is the Bible? Why should we trust the Bible? Why should we read the Bible? And then how should we read the Bible? Now, if you read those and you're like, I am nailing all of those questions, fantastic. That's amazing. I would, we would love to record you for our next Vision Sunday testimony video. The other thing I'd say is that my answers to these questions are not going to be all conclusive. Some of you today will find better ways to answer these questions, and you might have better ways to answer these questions. And what I would encourage with, we would love you to share those in your small groups as you gather, as you gather in smaller community. Talk through how you've processed these questions together. This is not me telling you the conclusive truth to each of these answers, but how I've wrestled with them in my faith. Because as a Christian, this is a fairly central document for us. It's not peripheral. It's, it's quite important for us to understand and wrestle with this text. And research and statistics show us that actually biblical literacy is on the way out, not among the world, but in the Christian church. We have more and more people who the only time they hear or read the Bible is when a pastor preaches it on Sunday, but not here at New Life. Because we believe that the Word of God is for the people of God. And that is what Becoming Sunday is all about. A guy named Tim Keller, who if I did a wedding on Friday and I quoted Timothy Keller and like all the new lifers like chuckled throughout the audience as if I mentioned him every time I preach. I do mention him most times that I preach. I'm a big Keller fan. But Keller talks about that there are three kind of main ways that Western society used to approach the Bible. The first way was that the Bible is, is the truth but we don't follow it. So some people are like, yeah, I really believe the Bible has truth in it, but I'm not going to live my life by it. Another way was for people to actually say, I, I believe it and I follow it devotedly. And then there was a third way of people who just thought the Bible was filled with myths and stories and, and fancy tales. But he kind of says that Western society in 21st century has changed, that it's harder to actually group people into one of those. It, it seems to be more of a mixture of them altogether that some people are happy to take some parts and leave out others, or, or they're comfortable with Jesus, but we don't really like God in Deuteronomy, so let's just stay away from God there. And, and, and we, we kind of pick and choose, and so different levels of people have different measures of understanding of how much of the Bible we should trust. He goes on to say that both believers and skeptics, skeptics become unfamiliar with what the church has historically believed about Scripture and what the Bible says about itself. Coming to grips with this is always crucial, but in our time, it's, never more, it's now more important than ever. We must not, however, be so intent on getting our doctrine of Scripture right that we neglect its proper role in our lives. So if Scripture's proper role isn't doctrine, what is its purpose? Well, before we go there, let's tackle the first question. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? 
Now, when I was young, I used to think the Bible was like a narrative like Harry Potter, where it kind of starts and finishes. It has a conclusive narrative that's exciting, and if you just hold on to your seats, it'll you know, get really interesting. And then as I started to read the Bible, I recognized that if you read the Bible like you read Harry Potter, you're going to be severely disappointed. Maybe some of you here today are thinking, well, the Bible is just nothing more than a work of fiction. Maybe some of you, like I was taught in Sunday school, believe the Bible is basic instructions before leaving earth, which was just a clever way of an acronym of B-I-B-L-E, which I, I also don't believe that's a healthy understanding of the Bible. Maybe for you, it's God's manual for life, or for many people, just a really good source of Christian baby names. Shout out if that's you. Like, no, nothing wrong with getting, yeah, fantastic. Sancho was in the front row. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think what the Bible is, it's far more complex than either of these definitions offers us. I'm a student of history. I like to think I'm a historian, but a historian is someone far smarter than I am. I'm a student of history. I went to university and studied it. And it was quite illustrative for me when I realized that practically speaking, the Bible is best understood as a collection of stories, histories, poems, wise sayings, instructional letters, and biographies written by poets, prophets, shepherds, and kings, and took uh, up to 1,500 years for all these people to have written it, and no one, none of those people lived for that 1,500 years. It had about 40 different writers, most of whom did not meet each other, and yet when you read the Bible, there seems to be a consistent, say, a salvation theme throughout all of it. Now, the Bible does contain doctrine, and it is fact which should primarily inform our doctrine, but I don't believe the reason we should read the Bible is primarily so we can fill our minds with what to believe. I think the primary reason we read the Bible is to answer the question, in whom do we believe? In whom do we believe? It is ultimately the greatest source of God revealing His character, His goodness, and his nature throughout history to his people. And when we read the Bible as just basic instructions before leaving earth, what we can do is we can try squeeze the text into daily takeaways that may at times be struggled to apply to our life. But when we recognize that this is not just a book, it's more of a library of books. When we recognize that, we start to see it as a complex documents that needs to be entered into well. See, we are called to understand the truth about God, about the God that we, are, that we are called to follow and desire to know. There's this moment when the Pharisees come to God with their right doctrine, and they come to, him to, they come to Jesus in the, in the New Testament. They come to Jesus to talk to him about marriage and what Moses said about marriage, trying to trip Jesus up with this idea of, well, Moses said that divorce was okay, and what do you say, Jesus? And he condemns them by saying this. Jesus replied in the next slide, you are in error because you do not know, not just the scriptures, but you also don't know the power of God, which seems to infer that Jesus is saying there's more than just knowing what the scriptures say. It's actually important to know the one behind the scriptures as well. Do you know the narrative that God is weaving is more than just right and wrong? There is an eternal narrative here Jesus seems to be hinting at. And it's still true for us today. See, it's, it's not that uh, the scriptures have a weak understanding on their own, but that them by themselves, we have to recognize, must be married with the idea that the God who they talk of is alive 
is, is present, is with us, and can be known and interacted with as we wrestle with the Scriptures. The writer of Hebrews actually goes and explains this in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the Word of God is alive and active, uh, the writer says, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul, spirit, joints, and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Now, it would be right for us to expect, actually, what the writer of Hebrews was mainly talking about. He was probably most of the Old Testament, if not all of the Old Testament, saying that for the things that you and I are struggling with to get through Leviticus and Numbers, the writer of Hebrews is saying, this stuff is still good. It's alive and well. It offers us truth about God today. And so, too, I believe, still, this Word of God is living. It is alive. It speaks to us. If I was to tell you, as New Life, a, a way that we would say, what is the Bible? It would be something like this. The Bible is the inspired Word of God, spirit-breathed and man-written, through which we understand the character of God, story of God, will of God, and purpose of humanity. And when we wrestle with the Scriptures, we are wrestling with different authors, different writers, different styles, but the one God. And there's a beautiful narrative that that starts to speak to us. So what is the Bible? Now, we could keep going down that line, and there's more to say there. But for the sake of time, I want to move to the second question. Why should we trust it? Why should we trust the Bible? Now, a lot of the, those of you who have been joining us and reading the Bible, there have been questions and doubts that have been raised as you read through different parts. People have been like, I'm not sure I like the, the God of Leviticus, or, or the God of Genesis freaks me out. I just want to hang out with Jesus. And, and these doubts and questions can sometimes feel overwhelming to us. But it's of my belief that doubts about the Bible are not a negative thing. Doubts about our faith are not a negative thing. In fact, Jewish scholars back in the early times of the Jewish faith actually saw the presence of doubts and questions, not as signs of God's, uh, the, the lack of God's existence, but more as an invitation by God himself to come deeper into intimate knowledge that the, the presence of doubt, the presence of question, wasn't pointing as a justification for walking away, but rather walking in. And, and we have a phenomenon in our day and age called the deconstruction of faith, where so many young adults primarily, but I just read yesterday where a, a pastor of a, a very well-known blog in the United States has, has just walked through this process of what we would call deconstructing faith. The idea of deconstructing faith is when we allow our doubts and our questions to kind of unpick the, the, the assumed cultural knowledges we have about Christianity to the point where people walk away saying, Christianity never answers the big questions. There is all these things I want to know about God that no one talks about, so I'm just going to leave the faith altogether. Now, controversially, I actually believe it's really important, controversially, you can write me an email if you disagree at aaronmoorechurch.nu, my man. I think everybody at some stage needs to deconstruct their faith. I really firmly believe it. Because so much of our faith is collected cultural knowledge, not necessarily biblical truth. And when we deconstruct our faith, it's just not a good thing when it stays there. I think when we deconstruct, we should then also take upon the role of reconstructing it as well by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
that as we become young adults, as we become adults, when we have these questions, they are not reasons to step away from belief, but to step into further understanding and deeper understanding. It's why we talk about studying at Trinity. It's why we talk about studying at a Bible college or listening to podcasts or wrestling with your questions well. My deconstruction of faith happened at university, as it does for most people. I went and I studied uh, studies of religion, which wasn't study of the Christian religion, but all religions. And I was in courses where I was sitting next to Buddhists, Muslims, people who were believing in, in paganism, still sacrificing goats, and, and two guys who believed Odin and Thor were real. Some of you know this story, and atheists. And I remember sitting there in this room, and I would be like, I'm a Christian, I believe in the Bible, and everyone would sneer at me and be like, huh, right, you're one of those guys. I'm like, oh, okay. And, and it was hard. And then I went to my history classes and we would talk about historical texts. And I remember distinctly one day, one person saying, well, like, you know how like the Bible's not true. Are there any other texts that aren't true? And I was like, hey, wait, what? And, and I had, but here's the issue. I had nothing to say back. I had nothing to offer. It was like I, I had these questions were thrown at me of people sneering at me for being a Christian or people saying the Bible's not true. And I was like, oh, well, maybe it's not because I don't know why it is. But then just because of the grace of God, I had the right people around me, my parents, my family, the church I was involved in at the time, I was beckoned deeper, not beckoned away. To go, hey, hey, don't let these questions provoke a sense of walking away from faith, but maybe what if it's God saying it's time to dig deeper than just a childlike faith? And I'm so glad those people challenged me like that. And at New Life, I want to let you know, we are not afraid of doubt. We are not afraid of questions. We believe this is God beckoning us deeper into relationship with Him. And as a historian, I found out um, that actually the Bible is one of the most well-attested historical documents. Amy Orr Ewing, a, a fantastic uh, thinker over in, the United States, over in the United Kingdom, says, no document of the ancient period, no documents of the ancient period are as well as attested bibliographically as the New Testament. Now, we could go into the Old Testament and New. Um, I'm just going to go into the New Testament today about how I learned as a historian that this is a test, this is a, this is a text that could understand and carry the weight of my doubt. I, I started to wrestle with how historical was the depictions of Jesus and the early church. And I found that when we establish what we know about history, we, we try to look at the document we have and the other documents that attest to what history says actually happens. And the New Testament manuscripts, so this isn't a manuscript, this is a, a printed version, but the New Testament manuscripts were written at a much older time than this, are some of the most reliably close to the dates that were to be believed to have been written. For instance, if you'd done Alpha, you would have seen this. But on the next screen, you'll see that some of the earliest texts of Caesar's civil wars, which we have 10 copies of his work, the earliest known copy was 100 years after they were written. Plato, we have seven copies of his work, and the earliest dated copy of that work was 1,200 years after they were written. Tacitus, 20 copies, thousands of years after they were written. Aristotle, 49 copies, 1,400 years after they were written, and so on and so forth. And you get down to the New Testament, we have 24,000 copies, and the earliest dated copies were 10 to 50 years after they were written. Now, as a historian, we studied Julius Caesar's civil wars a lot and just took them as exactly what Julius Caesar said without question. But so often we face the New Testament with the same, uh, without the same level of scrutiny thinking that this is not a historical text that understands the weight of historical scrutiny. And I believe it does. 
I believe that these are texts that were not written by a man sitting alone in a room who had nothing else to do but to write the same story four times in four different ways, and then a whole bunch of letters to different churches around uh, the New Testament era, and then a really weird vision in the book of Revelations. Like, I don't believe that happened, but they're actually proof that these were written by people in a time who witnessed something happen. And it's so important that we recognize this is a historical document. The second thing as a historian I began to realize is that historically, the amount of non-Christian Jewish and pagan historians that were writing at the time of Christ and knew the New Testament writers mentioned many of the same facts. Guys like Thallus and Tacitus, uh, Suetonius, Plinius, uh, Secundus, and Josephus. Now, those are names that you're like, right over my head. I, uh, I haven't actually studied these names since I was at university, so that was hard for me to say. But if you know history, you know that many of these writers are trusted historical writers that we use their sources all the time to understand what actually happened. Now, we could go further down this. We could talk about what this means other than the fact that as a student of history in university, I began to recognize that when I stood in historical classes and people said, well, you know how the Bible's not true, I was like, I can actually question what historical proof do you have for that? Because I think historical evidence might lead us to a different conclusion. Now, we might say, well, Michael, how do we know it's the Word of God if it was 40 different writers? And, and the, the Alpha series does this really well. And if you haven't done Alpha yet, we'd encourage you to do that. Uh, you can sign up at church.nu slash Alpha. But when we talk about the Bible and the Word of God being the inspired Word of God, that God understood the breadth of, of the canon of Scripture, a really helpful way of understanding this is to highlight God did not handwrite Scripture himself. Paul mentioned this when he was talking about Genesis chapter 1. Like there wasn't a guy with a jetpack flying around the cosmos detailing what God did in the beginning of all things. So, so what do we know about Scripture? And the best way to understand God's role in Scripture would be to understand maybe an architect's role in the building of a house. On the next screen, you'll see a guy with some plans in front of him that an architect details the plans, understands the plans, and, and knows the fullness of how those plans will come out, but then submits those plans to builders who place the stones where the stones should be placed, who, draw the line, who put the rooms where the plans say the rooms should be drawn. The architect understands every piece of material that goes into the building before it is built, but it is built by a bunch of other people, which is a really helpful analogy for understanding why we say that the Bible is the Word of God whilst written by human hands. And we use this term known as the canonization or that the Bible is a canon. Everyone say the word canon. Say it louder than that. Canon. The word canon means uh, a rule or something to judge by. It's like a ruler or a measuring stick. And the books in the Old Testament and the New Testament were considered to be the authoritative measuring sticks of our faith. These are the things where we go back to and go, what do we know about God? Well, let's go to Scripture. Let's understand what Scripture says. Now, how did something become canon in the Bible? Did some person sit down one day and go, I really like these five books together, and then maybe these three? And, and when you actually research it, Things were brought into a canon. First of all, the Old Testament. I'm not going to go too much into because I think Paul would do a much better job. But what I would say is when you read it, they actually had select ways of understanding what, which writers, which prophets, and which historians would be considered part of the canon of the Old Testament. That by the time that the Old Testament that we would read it, or the Hebrew Bible, came to uh, be known in the time of Jesus, Jesus himself would have affirmed much of the same scriptures that we read today, would have known much of the same scriptures as the Old Testament. So how do we get the New Testament? 
the New Testament was uh, canonized or decided that these 27 books would be known as Scripture in a time in the, in the Synod of Hippo of 394. There was a collection of believers that came together and they started to say, okay, they, they did what the Jewish faith had done with the Old Testament. They had a lens through which to understand which books should be canonized and they decided that these 27 books would be known as the canon of the New Testament Scriptures. So they canonized or officially authorized the scriptures, writings, gospels, and letters that the early church had already widely accepted. Now, this is what's important. This wasn't a bunch of men and women sitting in a room going, we get to make the decision around what everyone should believe. The question was, what are the scriptures or letters or texts that the early church is already universally believing and holding to as scripture Let's put these into a single unified form and say these are the canons of Scripture. A guy named F.F. Bruce says it like this. When at last a church council, uh, the Synod of Hippo in AD 393, listed the 27 books of the New Testament, it did not confer upon them with authority which they did not already possess, but simply recorded their previously established canonicity. Amy or Ewing, another who I referenced earlier, goes on to say the canon was widely accepted within the church as authoritative and scriptural. But because of attacks on the integrity of the church and the growth of the church geographically, it became important to have the books of the Bible publicly recognized by a central agency so that unity amongst the early church could be preserved. And why do I say this? Number one, because I'm a student of history and this stuff makes me excited. Some of you are like, this stuff sends me to sleep, Michael. But I say it because it's so important as Christians, as people who follow the word of God, that we understand how we came to be with the Bible that we have today. Now, if you have more questions, don't step back from them, lean into them. But these are the words that have been passed down through generations and initiated and affirmed by the very people who stood with and learned from and lived alongside Jesus Christ when he walked this earth. So if, if we can trust the Bible as a historical document, why should we read it? Why should we read the Bible? Isn't this just another thing or, or like... Shouldn't we just let someone with far more time, like the pastor, read the Bible and then just tell us what it says? Well, I actually believe this is one of the most important calls to us as Christians that we recognize that the Bible has been made available to every single one of us. I talked about this in Vision Sunday, that in the time of Reformation, the Bible was only given to clergy and those in ministry, but men like Martin Luther and, and Calvin and other men and women did pay the price to actually make sure that the words of Scripture were disseminated to the people of God that we might be able to read and understand, not just walk away and have someone stand on a stage with a microphone, tell us what to believe, but that we can go to the Scripture for ourselves, and we can go, God, what have you said? Mahatma Gandhi actually understood the sacred and revolutionary nature of the Bible. He says this, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces. I think he's meaning that in a, in a good way, not like a terrorist kind of way. Turn the world upside down and bring peace to a battle-torn planet, but you treat it as nothing more than a piece of literature. And this was a man who did not claim to even be a Christian. And he himself saw the revolutionary words of Christ, the words of the Bible, the way that this scripture seemed to offer a new story, a better story to the world, and said, do you know what is in your hands? Now, the reason why we started with what the Bible is and why we should we trust the Bible is because if all you were to do was to open the Bible and start reading it and going, ah, oh, you know, God, make something come alive for me today, it wouldn't be easy. 
But when we recognize that this book is filled with writings that are thousands of years old by 40 different writers, then we recognize, number one, this is not always going to be easy to read. But I hope what you're starting to feel is the sense of importance behind every one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus having a rhythm of approaching the biblical text. Paul uh, wrote to a guy that I really like because he was a young church planter named Timothy. And he says this, but as for you, Timothy, continue on what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you have learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Why did you know the Holy Scriptures from infancy? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture, Paul writes, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now, when Paul was writing this, what he was writing had not yet been canonized as Scripture. Interestingly enough, he's talking about the very books that we struggle through every morning at the moment. He's talking about the books of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. He's saying this stuff is God-breathed. But what else does he say? This stuff can make you wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. He seems to be so excited and encouraging Timothy to unpack the biblical text because it has a purpose in his day and age. Now, as a pastor, I believe that because it's been canonized in Scripture and the architecture of God, we can assume and say that this is the New Testament's witness as well, that it is God-breathed. That it as well can be used for what does Paul say? He says that it can be used for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Why? That we might be equipped for every good work in the world. He seems to be saying to Timothy, there is a bigger purpose to reading the Bible than just filling your head with knowledge. It's a sense where as a community, you come, you learn from it together. You use it to offer correction to one another. When, when our lives may not be, be fulfilling the biblical witness, he, he says in other parts of the New Testament, live the, to the standard of the gospel that you have been called. He says it's, it's used for encouraging and equipping you for what you need to do in the world. Why do we read the Bible? Because for thousands of years, the Bible has been a document that when placed into the hands of believers reminds them of the story of home, of a narrative that is bigger than the struggling and the suffering, the persecution they may be walking through. It calls them into a bigger narrative and it calls you into a bigger narrative today as well. Friends, that's why we read. That's why we unpack. Because as Kevin DeYoung would say, he says, uh, no one succeeds at the highest level of sports without working out. No one makes it in music without lots of practice. No one excels in scholarship without years of study, and no one makes it far in the school of holiness without hours and days and years in the Word. You and I will not mature as quickly, uh, as quickly minister as effectively or live as gloriously without immersing ourselves in Scriptures. I remember when Stu Cameron, who used to be my pastor, said this to me. He said, Michael, you cannot fake history with God. You cannot fake history with God, so why not start your history with God today? Start the journey. Start learning, start reading. Friends, we have in our possession a book that in some countries in the world is illegal, is the bestseller of all times, actually one of the most stolen books of all time. And it's a book that I believe that offers a narrative that actually calls to lift our eyes beyond Western civilization and to become part of a kingdom that is eternal and everlasting. What place do the Word of God have in your life today? What is the Bible? Why should we trust it? Why should we read it? Finally, how should we read it? And I finish with this today. I wanna to offer three thoughts that I think are pivotal for us 
to reading the Bible. That as we approach the text, a guy named Billings says this, that sometimes believers often read the Bible as a blueprint. You know, where does this fat passage fit into my perceived theology? Or a buffet. What can I pick and choose to apply to my own life? And, and I think both of these can kind of be unhelpful approaches to the Bible. Instead, we should read the Bible in such a way where we are immersed in a story and getting to know a God who's been eternally present and active throughout human history. And so there are three suggestions today that I would say is really helpful for us when we read the Bible. The first one is I think we should read the Bible with devotional regularity. Devotional regularity. Now, we won't go to the next slide, Cassandra. I'll just tell, no, I'll go back a slide. There, we'll stay on that one. Devotional regularity. What does that mean? It means that I think we should read the Bible in a sense of consistent pace, where we find ourselves consistently in the Word of God. Uh, the lady who was on screen before, her name's Charlotte. She's not only my hairdresser, she's also my sister-in-law, so I see Charlotte a lot. And consistency for Charlotte changes because she's got two kids. And if you have children, you know reading the Bible at the same time every day is, is like trying to see a blue moon. It's almost impossible. So consistency doesn't mean you have to do it this way or else. It's going, hey, God, how can I build you into the rhythm of my week by spending time in your word? For some of us, it's going to be daily. For some of us, it's going to be every second day or when we can. Some of us listen to the word of God, and some of us have different approaches, but there is a devotional regularity that's so important. There's these uh, group of people called the Berean Jews in Acts chapter 17, which will be on the next slide. Thanks, Cass. And in Acts chapter 17, we see Paul preaching the gospel to the Berean Jews. In, and, and, and the word of God says this in Acts chapter 20, uh, 17, verse 11. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Now, these were Jews, so they did not believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah or the Lord yet. But what did they do when Paul preached about Jesus to them? For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek men, women, uh, Greek women and many Greek men. What's happening here? You have these Jews who are, who are deep in scriptures. And when they hear Paul preaching something they don't understand, they don't go, well, everyone else seems to be believing it. Well, I went to church on Sunday and everyone clapped the preacher, so I guess we should really believe what he says. Let's go study this. Let's go see if there's truth in this. And they do, and they discover what Paul writes to Timothy. They become wise to salvation in Christ Jesus. This is what devotional regularity brings us, friends. What does it look like for you to have a rhythm of reading the Word of God? Read the Bible with community. We have a great uh, WhatsApp at the moment where about 57, 60 people from New York, Brisbane are all uh, reading and the Bible and like commenting together. Depending how often you read it, it can be almost more arduous to read the WhatsApp group than reading the Bible at times. Like, I don't, like sometimes it's just like there's 50 comments in a day. I'm like I, don't, like, I don't know if I can do it today, but it's so good that everyone else is interacting. It's fantastic. But there's a sense that the reason why we do that is because we read the Bible not in solitary confinement, but in community. Some of this week, I met with a New Testament theologian and I was asking him questions and just asking him questions. I'm like, I'm not sure if it's okay past to ask this stuff, but by asking him, my faith was deepened, my knowledge was enriched, and I came to know God better. Friends, don't read the Bible by yourself and then be like, I don't get this, and shut it and walk away. We're called to read the Bible together. That's why here at New Life Brisbane, we have 10 small groups, about 10 people in each small group, because we want to do this stuff together. Don't not be in community as you follow Jesus, as we become more like him this year. We see this beautifully in the book of Acts chapter 8, where Paul, where not Paul, where Philip comes across the, the, the Ethiopian eunuch. And he, he comes up to the Ethiopian eunuch, he's reading through the book of Isaiah, and he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? Philip asks, and he says, how can I? Unless someone explains it to me. 
So he invites Philip to come up and sit with him. And in that moment, he explains to him what he's reading in the book of Isaiah in a beautiful way. And his sense of community leads to him being baptized in the next moment into deep transformation. And here's what I would say. There is no such thing as a stupid question when it comes to reading the Bible. Don't, don't be a part of our community and think it's wrong to even have doubts or concerns, but do not hold them within yourself or make them private. Because what happens is people who do that then go, the church never answered my questions. And my offer would be, give us the chance to answer it in community. Allow us to process it with you, that we might know and learn how this word that is alive and well might come alive for us today. And finally, we read with the power of the Holy Spirit. What do I mean when I say this? Well, I'm reminded of a story in Luke chapter 24 where Jesus is walking along with two disciples who do not know it's Jesus and they're confused because Jesus was meant to be their Messiah and he's no longer around and they're depressed and they're worried. And Jesus turns to them and he says, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus comes along and explains to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And in this moment, what we see is that God is so longing to reveal his character to us in the word of God. Then you might be like, well, where's Jesus now? Like, I need him to come and do a Bible study with me today. And while we live in an Acts 2 world where we don't have Jesus beside us, but the Holy Spirit is with us and in us, that every time we open the word of God, we should say, hey, Holy Spirit, what are you saying? Lead me today. Speak and He will reveal truth to us. He will reveal scripture to us. He will lead us down paths of revelation we never could have achieved on our own. Friends, God doesn't come and give us a thousand year old document and go, you better be reading this or else. And then we're like, man, it's just difficult. He longs for us to allow this document to pull us into devotional regularity, to pull us into deeper community and to pull us into deeper intimacy with Him. It's a beautiful strategy for God just saying, I want deeper relationship with you. And the only way you're going to be able to access the Word is by talking to me, being with my people, spending time with me regularly. It's a beautiful, beautiful reality and truth. Because here's what I believe. That when you read the Bible, you come to know this God, this Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who from the beginning of time has been working together that all humanity might flourish. And when we haven't flourished, the narrative of Scripture says that God continues to rock up, that God continues to show up in our story, climaxing in the person of Jesus, coming as the God-man who gave His life for us, fulfilling Old Testament law and leading us into a new relationship with Him. Now, for those of you reading the Old Testament, you're like, man, I just want to get, like it's, it's so hard when the Jesus isn't in the picture. That's not a bad thing to be feeling, but don't rush through that inhabit the narrative well, that we might understand the power of Easter, that we might understand the power of the New Testament, but also recognize that God has been speaking and moving powerfully through the Old Testament, revealing His character there as well. Friends, we are the people of God, called to read the Word of God. What place does the Bible have in your life today? Would you stand with me as I pray? Gracious God, Lord, we come before you and I, I just thank you right now that you did not give us an ancient text to confuse us, but to reveal yourself to us. That you call us deeper into community, deeper into relationship with you, that our questions are invitations. Help us to step into them. 
Lord, I thank you that, that we do not need to be afraid of our doubts because our doubts cannot break you. For you stand strong and firm as the rock of our salvation and the word of truth and life. I pray we would not approach the Bible with superficial a cursory glancing, but allow us to be people formed by the word. And I pray for those today who do not know you. It's their first time in church. Like, man, I've got to read the whole Bible now. Lord, I pray before they feel the weight of religion, they would feel the buoyancy and reality of your presence right now. That you'd reveal to them the truth of salvation and that they might come to know through scripture, but also through community that you are alive and present and that you long for to be known by us and through your word pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, we're going to finish today singing a song that I believe is drenched in Scripture. It's called, Oh Praise the Name. And it's a song which I think paints for us a picture of what the gospel, what the gospel says and promises us. It is a song filled with scriptural truth. Would you join with us as we worship God and sing together?